He is risen. I do rejoice this morning. And uh, I, I don't know about you, but uh, on uh, Resurrection Sunday, I just always go back to the original resurrection, the, the time. Can you imagine what it was like when the women arrived at the tomb and found that it was empty? And then they told the disciples, and the disciples ran, and they entered the tomb, and they knew it was empty. What a radical thing that was. And you know, it's been now 2,000 years plus uh, since that time, and we, we do this every year, and we have, you know, Resurrection Sunday, and we talk about the resurrection, but uh, it's still just as significant as it was that first Easter morning. And so we rejoice and we celebrate and we praise His name because not only do we have a Savior who came and lived a sinless life and died an atoning death on the cross, but a Savior who is alive forevermore. And we have one who is seated at the right hand of God, whoever lives to make intercession for us. Uh, we have the Holy Spirit that indwells us and enables us to live the Christian life and uh, all that the the Lord has provided for us. What a day. Uh, This is the highlight of the Christian year and is a day for us to praise Him. Well, this morning I want us to go to the book of Acts. And there are a lot of different passages that we've looked at on Resurrection Sundays throughout the year. But this morning going to Acts chapter 2. And we're going to read verses 22 to 38 this morning. So after you find that, stand with me. Acts chapter 2. And you know this is a sermon by the Apostle Peter, but let's read it beginning in verse 22. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders, and signs with which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God has raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in his power. For David says of him, I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he is at my right hand, so that I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, and my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope, because you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life, You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. And so, because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. 
This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent. And each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much this morning just for the reality of your atoning work, that you have worked out your redemptive plan in history, that you have brought about your way of salvation for your people. And Lord, we thank you that uh, you have saved sinners like us. And we know it's all because of the cross and it's all because of the resurrection that we have eternal life. And Lord, we uh, rejoice today. We celebrate this day. We uh, uh, just uh, know that it is only because of your grace and the power of your salvation that you have redeemed us and atoned for our sins. And Lord, we thank you so much. And Lord, we live with eternal gratitude. And Lord, we uh, someday will be with you forever because of that saving grace. But Lord, we pray this morning that you would uh, work in our midst. Lord, we pray that you would save the lost, that you would uh, uh, help all of us to know your plan of salvation. And Lord, that we can uh, be yours, that we can be uh, redeemed and we can be saved forever because of Christ. So Lord, we uh, worship, we rejoice, we celebrate, we praise your name this morning. And it's in Jesus' precious holy name we pray. Amen. I'm told that in 1957, a song was released with the title of What a Difference a Day Makes. I understand it sold over two million copies. Now, I don't remember that song because I was two years old. Most of you don't remember it either. But there's a lot of truth in that title. There are certain days in history that are so significant, we would have to say, what a difference a day makes. And we could point to days like December 7th, 1941, or more recently, September 11th, 2001. We could point to other days, like the day the first atomic bomb was dropped, or the day the stock market crashed, or the day the light bulb was invented. But there has never been a day that has made as much difference as the day Jesus Christ rose from the dead. By far and away, the resurrection of Christ has been the greatest event in human history. It was a day 
in which eternity was altered. It was a day in which sin was defeated forever. And if you were to ask me this morning, what is the most important doctrine in Christianity, I would say without any hesitation, it is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Christianity stands or falls with the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And the day Jesus rose from the grave is without doubt the greatest day in human history. And yet amazingly... To many people, it has become merely another fun holiday. For many people today, it will simply be a day of bunny rabbits, jelly beans, colored eggs, and new clothes. Have we forgotten the significance of this day? Far too many of us have. But I hope for you that is not the case. I hope for you the reality of the resurrection makes a big difference in your life. And may I be so bold this morning as to say that there are three questions that are the most important questions in life. And those are these three. Number one, did Jesus really rise from the dead? Number two, what does that mean? And number three, what must we do in response. Those three questions have eternal consequences. And to help us answer these questions biblically, I want us to turn to the very first sermon that was ever preached in the church age. We read it just a few minutes earlier in Acts chapter 2. And it is significant that the very first sermon of the church age was an Easter sermon. In fact, every sermon in the early church was an Easter sermon. If you follow the progression of the book of Acts, you will see that Peter delivered another Easter sermon on the resurrection in chapter 4, and then another one in chapter 10. Stephen preaches the resurrection in chapter 7. Philip does so in chapter 8. And Paul preaches on the resurrection in chapter 9, chapter 13, and chapter 28. The resurrection was the central theme of the preaching of the apostles in the early church. Nearly everywhere you look in the New Testament epistles, you find references to the resurrection. It was the reality of the resurrection that empowered the apostles to turn the world upside down for Jesus Christ. But let's answer those three questions. And we begin with a confirmation that leads to reliability. The first question is whether Jesus really did rise from the dead. You can't really talk about the difference the resurrection makes if you don't believe there was a resurrection. And so Peter addresses that in verses 22 to 24. He affirms that the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead actually occurred historically. Look with me at verse 22. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, 
a man attested you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you know. Stop right there for a moment. One of the most well-attested events in the ancient world is the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. It is by far and away the most well-documented event in ancient history. Not only by the writers of Scripture, but by many secular sources as well. A.T. Pearson says that there were over 1,000 prophecies God has made in the Bible that have already come to pass, and they are verified by history. God has a 100% record of accuracy. And if there is any one single event that can be verified historically, it is the resurrection of Christ. There is a vast amount of evidence, and we really won't be able to fully exhaust it this morning, but there is more than enough evidence to prove the reality of the resurrection beyond a reasonable doubt. And in this sermon, Peter points to the fact that many, if not most, of the people present in that audience that day were eyewitnesses of the life and ministry and miracles of Jesus. He says here in verse 22, you yourselves know. They all knew about the miracles of Christ, and no one questioned them. They had seen them with their own eyes. They were also witnesses of his resurrection. In verse 32, he says, God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of that fact. It wasn't just the apostles who were the eyewitnesses. The Bible tells us that there were over 500 people who personally saw the resurrected Christ. And we see that in 1 Corinthians 15, 6. A short walk could easily verify that the tomb was empty. No one could deny that. And no doubt many of them had gone out and seen it themselves. So Peter is saying here, you can't deny the miracles of Christ, including his resurrection from the dead. And it has always been interesting to me that no one in the first century ever denied the resurrection other than the Romans who had to come up with some kind of explanation of why their soldiers could not guard the the tomb. But it is only in modern times, hundreds of years later, that people have begun to question the resurrection and to come up with all kinds of flimsy explanations to deny it. But I want us to think about this for a moment. Verse 37 tells us that after this sermon on the resurrection, the people were pierced to the heart. Verse 41 tells us there were about 3,000 people who were saved and baptized that day. A few days later, we're told that 5,000 more came to Christ. Why do you think that was the case? 
I'll tell you why. It's because they knew it was true. They knew what Peter was saying to them was true. They knew Jesus really did rise from the dead. They were eyewitnesses of it. At least many of them were. Listen, what was it that changed those cowardly disciples from those who denied Christ and hid away in fear to those who ultimately were imprisoned, beaten, tortured, and killed? Would that kind of transformation have occurred if they had stolen Jesus' body? Would they have done that if they knew it was a hoax? I don't think so. And think about this for a moment. What was it that was so radical that would convince the Jewish Christians to stop worshiping on the Sabbath and start worshiping on the first day of the week instead? The Sabbath was something that was ingrained into their belief system. And only the resurrection could change that practice by the early Christians. And those of us who are saved understand that the reason we worship on Sunday is because it's the Son's day. It is the day we celebrate His resurrection from the dead. Ever since Jesus burst forth from the grave... Christians have worshipped on the first day of the week, the Lord's Day, the day of His resurrection. But we must understand that it took something very drastic for devout Jews to change from worshipping on the Sabbath to worshipping on the Lord's Day. It took something history-altering like this to bring about this change. Now, there are all kinds of other things that we could point to to provide evidence for the resurrection. We could talk about the huge stone that covered the mouth of the sepulcher that historians tell us took 20 men to move. And how the verbs used in the Gospels indicate that it was not only moved, but it was literally picked up and tossed on top of the hill. Who moved the stone, and why was it moved so far away from the tomb? Peter Marshall answers that question this way. He said, the stone of Jesus' tomb was a pebble compared to the rock of ages inside. And the stone was rolled away not to permit Christ to come out, but so that the disciples could go in, so they could see that the tomb was empty. We could talk about the Roman seal that was placed on the tomb, which meant instant death to anyone who would tamper with it. Or the Roman guard that was so highly trained that they were able to fend off an entire invading army. And we could talk about the ridiculous notion that the soldiers fell asleep because the penalty for Even one of them falling asleep was that they would all be burned alive in their own armor. And so we can be certain that if even one of them began to nod off, the others surely would be slapping him to 
keep him awake. We could talk about the fact that there is no other viable alternative to the resurrection that has ever been given. And all these silly explanations have been easily dispelled. And we have not even touched on the powerful witness of fulfilled prophecy, which Peter does here in this sermon, explaining that the resurrection of Christ was clearly predicted by King David. But understand something. As convincing as all these arguments may be, it is impossible to prove the resurrection completely. It is impossible for us to step back into history 2,000 years and witness it for ourselves as many of these people did. It is impossible for us to put the resurrection in a test tube and test it scientifically. We weren't there, and even though we have the eyewitness accounts of many who were, that will not satisfy everyone, and there will always be an element of faith required to believe it. Of course, the Bible tells us that without faith, it is impossible to please God. And our salvation is always by faith. So, in a very real sense... Easter is not the time to argue for the resurrection. It is a time to underline what it means that it is true. And so that leads us to our second consideration today, and that is some consequences that lead to relevance. If Jesus really did rise from the dead, then what difference does it make? What does it mean in your life? Does it make any difference at all? You know, people go to church on Easter Sunday more than any other day of the year. Many will come to church on Easter Sunday who will never come any other time. Now, why do people do that? Well, there are probably a number of different reasons. Maybe to please a family member who has been after them to attend church. But I believe there is something deep down inside us that tells us that God is real and the Easter account of the resurrection is true. God has put his witness within our conscience and we have this inner witness that his word is true and that his son has indeed come to save the lost. And so we still cling to this hope, however vague at times, that God exists and that he has created this world and that he has a plan of redemption and that he can help us with our deepest problems, even the problem of death. So we'd have to say that the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead makes all the difference in the world. And Peter explains to us that in the resurrection, four primary realities occur. First of all, sin is conquered. Sin is conquered. Look with me at verse 23 for a moment. It says, This man, delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, 
you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. He's saying, you Jews put him to death by nailing him to the cross and you used the godless Romans to accomplish that. But even though that is the case, it was all done according to the sovereign plan of God. Jesus was a participant in history, but he was not a victim of history. God planned the cross. The cross was no accident or unfortunate turn of events. The cross was planned by God from before the beginning of time. This was all His divine plan of redemption. And it all came to its highest point at the resurrection of Christ from the dead. Go on to verse 24. And God raised Him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for Him to be held in its power. Psalm 18.4 talks about the cords of death. What are the cords of death? They are the cords of sin. The Bible says the power of death is sin. It is our sin that gives death its power. But at the cross, the cords of sin were broken. As the author of Hebrews put it, Since then the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might deliver those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Death is the ultimate enemy. And we don't like to think about death or talk about it. And we hide behind antiseptic hospital walls or fancy funeral homes or well-manicured cemeteries. But the fact is, 100% of us will die one day. And when Jesus died on the cross, the disciples were absolutely devastated. All their hopes were completely crushed. On that Friday, when Jesus was nailed to the cross, it looked like everything evil had won. It appeared that death had conquered Christ. That was Friday, but it was anything but Good Friday to them. Oh, but that was Friday, Sunday made all the difference. On Sunday, the unbelievable happened, and they all saw it. Christ rose from the grave, and that made all the difference in their lives. Before that time, they were hiding for their lives in darkness and fear. But after that, they were courageous and bold, as Peter was, standing up now in the public square proclaiming the risen Christ. After that, they cared not for their own lives because they knew the resurrection was real. And every single one of the twelve, as we saw Friday night depicted, every single one of the twelve died as martyrs with the exception of Judas, of course, who betrayed him. And John, who was 
banished to the Isle of Patmos. But on the first Easter morning, tears of sorrow were swallowed up in tears of joy. Now they knew that absolutely nothing in the world could ever defeat Jesus Christ. And they knew immediately He was Lord of all. Death could not hold Him. And sin and hell was forever defeated for those who belong to Christ. And this is because the Bible teaches that for those who are in Christ, death can't hold us either. And because of the resurrection, we don't have to fear death or the cords of death, which are sin. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. If you are a born-again believer in Christ, you have absolutely no reason to fear sin and death. It has been conquered by the atoning death of Christ on the cross. Death couldn't hold Christ, and if we are in Him spiritually by faith, it cannot hold us either. Secondly, Scripture is confirmed. Now, in verses 25 to 32, Peter points to an important prophecy given by David. And although we won't have time this morning to go through it in detail, the essence of it is that David, hundreds of years before Christ, pointed to him as the one who would not suffer decay or the effects of death. And in verse 29, Peter makes it clear that this could not be a reference to David himself because he died and was still in his tomb. In fact, you can still see David's tomb in Israel today. So David had to be speaking of someone else, and verse 30 tells us that it would be one of David's descendants. So we have to conclude that he was speaking of the Christ, the Messiah of God, who would die but would not suffer the normal decay and corruption that comes after death. Peter makes it clear he's speaking of Christ. Verse 31, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. Jesus' body was placed in the tomb, but it suffered no decay. And the only way that could be the case is if he was raised back to life again. But the point here is that the resurrection is the final proof that Jesus Christ is, in fact, God's Messiah, God's chosen one, the Savior of the world. Verse 32 says, This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. One time, Jesus was confronted by the religious leaders of his day. And they asked him for a sign to demonstrate that he was really the promised Messiah. Here's what he told them. 
An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign shall be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The resurrection was the ultimate sign that he was who he claimed to be. The sign of the resurrection set Jesus apart from every other person who has ever lived. It gave proof that he was, in fact, the divine Son of God. In Romans 1, 4, Paul tells us he was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. Resurrection confirms everything Jesus claimed. And it confirms everything the Word of God declares concerning Him. Thirdly, we see the Savior is crowned. Look with me at verse 33. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God. Verse 34. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet. Verse 36, Therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Jesus Christ is now seated at the right hand of God the Father. And he will be there until the day that all The enemies of Christ are made a footstool for his feet. One day, Satan will be judged and cast into the lake of fire. One day, Christ will come again with power and great glory. And he will judge the unbelieving nations. And his eternal kingdom will begin. But even now, he is Lord of all. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. He is the exalted Son of the living God. Paul put it this way in Philippians chapter 2. Therefore, also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, the Apostle Paul wrote that when God raised Jesus from the dead, He gave Him a place far above all principalities and powers and dominions. He is the exalted Lord of all. His enemies put Him to a horrific death, but God the Father delivered all things into His hands. Fourthly, we see that the Spirit is commissioned. Go back to verse 33. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured forth this which you both see and hear. This is what kind of got this whole sermon started to begin with. This sermon was delivered on the day of Pentecost. And it was in response to the miraculous outpouring of the Holy Spirit. 
And here, Peter makes it clear that the Spirit came because Christ rose from the dead and ascended to the Father. In John 7.39, we're told that the Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. The Spirit could not come until the Son was glorified, but as soon as Jesus rose from the dead and ascended back to his Father, the Holy Spirit came. And it is the Holy Spirit that gives us power to live the life that he's called us to live. And it is the Holy Spirit that gives us power to be witnesses for him. It says in Acts 1.8, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses. So all these consequences came about because of the reality of the resurrection. And these provide great relevance for all of us who are in Christ Jesus. But there's one more element in this sermon, and that is really what brings it down to brass tacks, which is a conviction that leads to repentance. A conviction that leads to repentance. How should we respond to all this? Well, notice how the people that day responded. Look at verse 37. Now, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Because of this powerful sermon and the witness of the Holy Spirit, they came to the conclusion that they had, in fact, killed their Messiah and that God had, in fact, raised him from the dead and that he, in fact, is Lord of all. They were pierced to the heart by the conviction of the Holy Spirit. They were brought to recognize their own sin. And they asked the apostles what they should do about that. Notice Peter's answer in verse 38. And Peter said to them, Repent, and let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The key word there is the word repent. Baptism is an outward symbol of inward repentance and saving faith. The result is the total forgiveness of sin and the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And my friend, in the same way that these 3,000 people repented and found forgiveness and salvation that day, you can today. Here's how Paul put it in Romans 10, 9 and 10, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, man believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth, he confesses, confesses, resulting in salvation. As you turn from your sin to Christ and believe in your heart that God has, in fact, raised him from the dead, you will be saved forever. Your believing in Christ will result in the imputed righteousness of Christ being credited to your accounts. And your confession of that faith will result in eternal 
salvation. But there's only one way of salvation, and that is through faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. He said, unless you believe that I am He, that is the Christ, you will die in your sins. The Apostle Peter would later say in Acts 4.12, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which you must be saved. Only one way of salvation, through faith in Christ. Paul wrote, for there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony born at the proper time. I'll tell you why there's only one way of salvation. It is because there is only one person that has ever risen from the dead. He is the only one who has defeated sin and hell and the grave. Suppose you were lost in a thick jungle and you were wandering around without hope for a long period of time. And suppose you came to a clearing where you saw two forest rangers. One was dead the other was alive. Which one would you turn to for help? Now, I know that sounds like a silly question, but which person will you turn to for eternal life? Some religious leader that is smoldering in his grave or one who has conquered the grave and is alive forevermore? I choose the living one. Peter said David wasn't speaking of himself. He was talking about one who would never suffer decay. He was speaking of the Christ who would rise from the dead. What a difference Easter makes. What a difference the resurrection makes. Has he made a difference in your life? Do you know the risen Christ as your Lord and Savior? Let's pray together. Father, we pray this morning that you would help us just to understand, again, the significance of the resurrection, coupled with the significance of the cross, your plan of salvation, including the ascension, all that is part of your redemptive plan. And Lord, we pray this morning, if there's anyone in this place today that does not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, we pray that on this day, that we focus on the resurrection, that perhaps they would come to know Christ as Lord and Savior. They would repent of sin, put faith in Christ alone, and receive your free gift of eternal life. And Lord, we pray that all of us would be bold as the, the apostles were. And even though we are not eyewitnesses to the resurrection, we have the account of those eyewitnesses. 
And we, too, have the same faith. So, Lord, help us also to go and turn our world upside down for Christ. Help us also to be bold with our testimony and to live for Christ and to serve Christ faithfully. Lord, we know that the resurrection is the greatest event in history. And Lord, we pray that it would be the most significant event to us as well. So Lord, help us to respond the way you'd want us to, pleasing in your sight. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.